the situation and the circumstances are what's going to govern how you respond in specific situations. And then at other times you do have the scoffer that's leading somebody astray. And then what do you do? And then you don the flamethrower. I have yet to see anyone in my life don a flame, like a rhetorical flamethrower and affect good things. I have only, that's the problem with me is I've only seen people don the flamethrower and it's like, wow, that was unnecessary. So that, that's where I think I'm very suspicious that I would know when to pull the flamethrower. And the only times I have for me personally have probably been in the flesh, but that's my own failing and weakness. And that doesn't invalidate the whole issue. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. And uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about someone's mood. <laughs> the and mood. Then, amongst other sundry things. But how are you guys doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. This uh, coffee today, how do you guys like it? I haven't. I actually haven't Take tasted it yet. All right, t- tell me what you think. I've had a fair amount already. It's good stuff. Is bright a good word it to describe is. that? It's bright with a little bit of uh, something like, uh, I don't know, roasty in it. It's good. It's good. I almost want to say like an, a bright, earthy flavor. So what yeah. did you make for us this morning? I went to our favorite local coffee shop Ooh. and got a bag. Oh, so this is porch no, light. listeners. You'd think it's porch light, but it's actually the real local coffee house that is our favorite brickhouse. Ah, okay. Well, I may have been words been are told a story about you not preferring them as your local coffee house, and so well, I may have just set this oh, up on purpose, Charlie, just for Missy. <laughs> Missy at Brickhouse, if you're listening, am, that opener was for you. <laughs> I'm drinking this out of a Brickhouse mug. Oh. And so when I was asked what is my favorite local coffee shop, since I live in the town of Ankeny, 50023, I said my favorite local coffee shop is Porchlight because it's local. I think this is on local, like it's in the locale of which I live locally. And it was not what's your so favorite good. coffee shop or what's the best coffee shop in Iowa. It was, oh boy. What's your favorite local? Look at what you started. So to give you credit, Charlie, I actually think your comment makes sense because we're local in Ankeny, but she was just giving you the business behind your back. And I'm like, I'm totally going to pile on. This sounds fun. Even after you made that nice comment about me earlier. I'm going to get a wild badger and release it in Brickhouse Coffee Shop. <laughs> oh. Uh, no, it's good. So I, <clears throat> Abby had an appointment in Iowa City yesterday just for a routine check. And everything's fine. We're going to go back again in six months. She has like a jaw issue. But I, I, I've I, said multiple times in December driving by Brickhouse that I should stop. It's one of my favorite, is like my favorite coffee house. And the kids know this and we keep missing. I'll forget it on the way out and on the way back they're closed. And so this time Abby's like, dad, your favorite coffee house. And I, thanks Abby. So got a bag of beans, some coffee. Do it. They gave me a free mug. I was going to buy that, but. Brickhouse, thanks for saving Charlie. He usually drinks out of a styrofoam mug when we record. I've been trying to help him, and he knows it too, but he's just, he's content. He has a lot of contentment. There are a lot of mugs in my office that he could use. (laughs) I was trying to give him a... (laughs) I've got a Yankees one right over there. Well, no. no. Okay, let's get to some real things here. (laughs) Note, Charlie's the one 
that is redirecting our course <laughs> away from the nonsense that Tim is. Uh, no, oh. Charlie's also the target of that nonsense. So a couple, a couple of introductory <laughs> things here. We didn't mention this before, but Andy, if you have weekly wisdom that you'd like to share, you can jump in with that. Okay. <clears throat> um, but um, yes, so we have started sort of refurbishing, maybe would be the right word, our website. And so if you go onto the homepage, you'll see that there's a new little drop-down menu with ink things on it. And we have posted a couple of things there. We have Andy's blog post yeah. uh, from recent uh, days posted up there. And we are planning to, Tim and I are planning to write some things there as well. And uh, if you go back to some of our oldest episodes, those have been refurbished with some new things as well. But just giving a plug for some new things there. My Baptist Bulletin article uh, came out this last week as well. Oh, a song, hey. a song for married ears only? Nice. Question mark. Oh, I like that. That's a I good title. I was about to say, I was say, well, I won't read it then. But you put a question mark. Oh, okay, mm. maybe. Hmm. But yeah, we, we, and so we need to get links to that as well on our website. Right. Actual published mm -hmm. things, but uh, published ink, I think, is our parlance. But all right, so. Anything else to share, folks, before I, we do that thing? I can pull a quote. I, I got a quote. I oh. just looked this up, so in my, I have a list of quotes here. And this is kind of interesting. I'm not trying to be a cast of Paul on the podcast here, but I read The um, the Meaning of Marriage by Keller like about two years ago in December. I think that was one of my books in business. And there's a quote here that he's, he says, and he's talking about the role of service to your spouse in a marriage. And he says the deep happiness that marriage bring can bring then lies on the far side of sacrificial service and the power of the spirit. And I just thought that was kind of a nice thing to think about for married people that there's probably a lot of good things in marriage, but it, it's all attendant on you being unselfish and serving the Lord in your marriage. It's just funny that now I'm saying that as a single guy, so it applies a little differently to me, but still, I think it's a good quote and I think it's helpful. Go ahead, Tim. I was at, uh, Shamba this oh, yeah. last weekend. That's right. right. How'd that go? Marriage conference. It went pretty well. Yeah. yeah. That was very thematically on a time. It was there actually right on theme, which is go. why I uh, thought I'd interject and just say that's like the message of the song is mm -hmm. that what is the husband supposed to do? He's supposed to tend to yeah. the vineyard. Well, what does that look like? Selflessly, sacrificially, loving his wife, leading and serving his family. And if you focus on that, you tend to have a better life. Uh, it's the far side. What was the exact words? It's the far side. It's on side. the far side of sacrificial service. A sacrificial yep. service. The happiness that marriage offers is found on the far side of sacrificial service exactly. and the power of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good quote. I haven't finished it yet, Tim, but I am closer than I've ever been to finishing your book. You read one more page? I'm... <laughs> How hey, many, Sam, this is the farthest I've ever been from the Shire. Yeah. <laughs> this is the farthest I've ever been towards completing the Song of Songs for singles. <laughs> if I take another step, Mr. Frodo? There is, there is a One YouTube video. There's a, there's a YouTube video where every step that Sam takes, they re-interject that clip. Oh, so literally every that. step, Mr. Frodo. This is the farthest I've ever been. And then he takes one more and it just keeps doing it. It's, it's so good. Annoying. It's a waste of everybody's time, yeah. but it's pretty funny. <laughs> anyway, we have some business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books and I'll go first. So I've been reading a lot of different things 
And so a lot of things to comment there. I'm, I'm about 80% done with about 10 different books right now. Wow. And so that's like a great place to be. You're horrendous. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Like your like in the fire are like melting. Except I would have given up on eight of them already. <laughs> but you know why I haven't given them up, Tim? So good, Tim. It's because Bookly so succinctly tracks where I left off. I know. That I can go right back to it. And so I, I'm a, I love Bookly. Sponsor. Which is why I'll never subscribe to Bookly because I don't want to be accountable. Tim like would that. live in yes. despair. <laughs> it's Tim's a very good enough type of reader. <laughs> anyway, so Tim for Booksing Day, you know, that holiday we created mm, because mm-hmm. we're great at creating holidays. Right. Which, by the way, happy ninth day of Balrog oh, or ninth day eighth of day of Balrog, depending on how you reckon Balrog days. <laughs> oh, uh, my words. But so back up from there. It, the 25th would be the 10th day of Balrog for those keeping track at home. And uh, so Tim on Booksing Day gave me this book by a minority of multiple dimensions, both a woman and an ethnic minority, who's also, she is also a pastor of a church. Oh, yeah, that So one. that tells you some flavorings of what's in this book. But I have been pleasantly surprised of some of the contents of that book centering discipleship. Good. There is a lot of disagreement, but there is agreement. And, and so we will come back to that at another point. But she points out these four, I don't know if she uses the word essentials, but essentials of discipleship. And she talks about character, theology, wisdom, and mission are her okay. four like essentials. And she heavily, heavily hits mission. And it, it, it's a very emergent flavor where the institution of the church is not as important. It's more communal, less formal. And so mission in the community becomes a huge pinnacle of their discipleship model in your local context type of an idea. Okay. And uh, But as far as just like four pillars of discipleship, what are you trying to do? You're trying to increase character, trying to increase someone's mm. theological understanding. You want them to be wise and discerning, and you want them to live in their community how Jesus lives. I, I actually had no problems with that, mm-hmm. and uh, it, she has some helpful thoughts. And so we'll come back to that at another mm-hmm. point. I still am not recommending the book by mm-hmm. any means, but there's more there within the field that I study often of discipleship than I thought would be there. So, Does she bring up, I know you haven't gotten you know, through a lot of it yet, but the idea that God uses trials and suffering in the sanctification of the believer? I don't think she's gotten that specific yet. Okay. She, she marks those essentials and then her, her kind of, she, she calls it the pathway, a discipleship pathway. And mm-hmm. she's explaining what pathways are. And it seems very ambiguous. She, she mentions, you know, we want kingdom fruit. We want kingdom mm. fruit. And she okay. says that a lot. And she does get to a point of defining it. And so I'll maybe do like a full workup on it at some point. I haven't decided if it's really worth airtime, but there's more there than I thought was there. It's, hmm. I think for me, at least it's, it's good for me to read someone on the edges of the uh, you know, the field that I'm the most practiced in. So, yeah. So then, so you haven't finished it, so you're not ready to rank it. No. Would you give it like, if you had to give it an emoji at this point, I assume not a heart emoji yet. An, em- an emoticon. An emoticon, not a heart um, emoji, not a like angry face emoji. I would emoji? probably, I would probably have the emoji where it's like <laughs> the guy, like 
with the the furled brow thinking okay yeah thinking of, like, oh that's mm. good that's nice okay so it's you making know. you think nice yeah okay anyway centering discipleship been reading that so i've been working through a couple of feminist books eve isn't evil feminist readings of the bible to upend our assumptions by julie faith parker and then she referenced Another book, Rediscovering Eve, Ancient Israelite Woman in Context by Carol Myers. I'm just going to break in, and Tim, I have you know a lot of friends I know in ministry and whatnot, and some professor friends and all this. You have the largest feminist theology library of anyone I know. <laughs> I just want to point that out on the air. Okay, carry on, carry on. <laughs> oh, Charlie can't handle it. What's he going to say? Oh, he's not? Oh, come on. What are we going to say? There's a new press <laughs> that I didn't know existed. It's called Esther Press. And Esther Press empowers women to courageously stand strong in the truth of who God made them to be. What was that? Esther Press. Estrogen Press? <laughs> Esther Press. A oh, Esther. Sorry. Empowers women to courageously stand strong in the truth of who God made them to be. I, I have a book uh, that's published by them, Warrior of Eden. And I'm not sure what happened, but I'm guessing some kind of a distribution relationship was created between Esther Press and David C. Cook because oh. they're marketing their books now, hmm. or at least they're distributing them. So, because I didn't had not heard of them before, and then on uh, the church I was visiting this last weekend, they had a Sunday school periodical, and on the back of the periodical was a full page ad for Esther Press. Uh, so I've had a couple of interactions now with it. Um, anyway, uh, it's just within that whole realm of uh, feminist readings and stuff. So Eve Isn't Evil by Julie Faith Parker. Uh, this is a Baker academic title. Oh, okay. There we go. The subtitle, Feminist Readings of the Bible to Upend Our Assumptions. Uh, chapter 2, Eve Isn't Evil, Why I Love Her and You Should Too. Which, by the way, Eve isn't evil. I mean, Amen. She, she erred. She made a mistake in the Garden of Eden, but I wouldn't call her as evil. Uh, she is the mother of all living, and uh, there are in many ways that women should model uh, her in her in her godliness. Uh, there's not a lot developed of her character and who she is in the biblical revelation, but to conclude that she is evil would be a false or incorrect conclusion. Um, but at the same time, this is a feminist reading, and a lot of times we don't understand what feminist readings are. Uh, particularly for our reader, our listeners. So I'm going to actually read a little bit Excellent. of what she does here. Um, she actually creates kind of her own translation slash paraphrase of the creation account. Uh, both Genesis 3.16 is going to be, she's going to translate that, but, but she just kind of tells the whole story. So I'm going to pick it up in um, chapter 3. <clears throat> where they sin. And I just want to kind of depict a little bit of, I would say, the bias. Maybe I should talk about feminist interpretation. Do we know what feminist interpretation is? I do. I had to read Rosemary yeah. Rutherford Rather's Sex and God Talk book. It's, it's like a revisioning the entire Bible apart from a man's view. And, and I think a listener needs to know that at times it's like wholesale change the story because you're doubting that the story was accurate because a man wrote it down kind of a thing. Yes. That's, I mean, she was, I think, on the edge of it, and Can I'm not super familiar like Say that are. again. It, it's it's uh, revisioning the entire story mm -hmm. because since a man wrote it down, he's mm -hmm. viewing it from his perspective right. and the woman's perspective is absence. So like the story that she opens her book with is she comes to her class and she says, 
if you look at all the creation stories, they're all male. So your assignment is to go home and create your own creation stories from a female viewpoint. And then they come back to the chair and she's like, now these are our scriptures. It's, it's like making it up as you go. Okay. That's really good. To use a succinct term, it's, it's a primary aspect of her hermeneutic. Yeah. Yes. Is it is to is to <clears throat> deconstruct right the gender of the author as part of her inter inter interpretation. There's the word I'm looking for. <clears throat> okay. So after they sin, then uh, God judges them. Um, yet the man sadly was not self-aware, and direct instead of directly owning his mistake, he took the route well worn by cowards and diverted the blame elsewhere. First, he threw his partner under the proverbial bus, and then he dared to insult God. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree. Then he mumbled quickly as an afterthought because the evidence could not be denied, and I ate. God in her grace let the man's self-centeredness slide. God then asked the woman directly what she had done. Unlike the man, the woman did not cast blame on her partner, who clearly had heard God's prohibition, but showed no reluctance in eating the fruit. And the woman wouldn't dream of accusing the deity herself. Instead, the woman rightfully informed God that eating of the fruit was the snake's suggestion, and then admitted to her own culpability. God did not ask the serpent any questions directly because the divine spark as our woman was so oh. trustworthy that she could always be believed. Wow. Okay. So wow. that's not how the story actually goes. <laughs> <clears throat> if you could describe it in one word, Tim. An emoji. Give so I'm going after God kicks them out emoji of emoji be the serpent. After God kicks them out of the garden, actually, she states, and Eve, she remained in Eden with God. Because what does the text actually say? That God kicked man out of the garden. Yikes. So she says man. that Eve actually stayed in Eden with God. The mother of all living with the mother of creation. So who is God? Eve? No, the mother, the mother. of creation. Yeah. Mother. E oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. E God is a woman. Yeah. Whenever you see a mother and daughter laughing together, this is a spark of God and Eve. Whenever you notice two women sharing stories and supporting each other, that is a trace of the divine mother-daughter. Wherever two or three women or girls are gathered in her name, God wow. is there among them. Eventually, Eve realized the need to share her life-giving power with the rest of the world, so she generously left the garden <clears throat> and joined Adam to have children. The, <laughs> the, wow. Yeah. So I was used to this kind of stuff mm -hmm. coming from like Fortress Press or some of these other publishers, but this is from Baker Academic. And I know it's the academic division within Baker, but, um, well, I think that's a little off. You know, I think what they should do is they should take that lady and go dump her in a cistern of cold water seven times and then do it again. What are you doing? And then bring her back and see if she changes her mind on anything. What are you doing? No idea. That's what they do to Weston and Out of the Silent Planet. Spouting oh, nonsense. Right. <laughs> so I think, can I just make one comment? Go I know, ahead. and this, I'm glad we're spending more time on this. I think 
when you when you don't study this stuff at the the foundational philosophical level mm -hmm. okay like read this hard stuff yeah what you only see are the 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 statements that the feminists are saying we just want equality but that's not equality no it's not that's that's uh upending and taking the power right, right. and i don't and i don't think we're arguing that men have to have the power or the women i'm, I'm saying there's an order that god has mm -hmm. but that's like pure rebellion and also it, look at how much it's just disregarding the text there's right. no authority in the bible no there's none and i think Christians who get into egalitarianism need to understand that you're you're dealing with people who are not inerrantists, they're not mm -hmm. inspirationists. Mm -hmm. They're like the, the people who are feeding this at the highest levels mm -hmm. are are those kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Right. And so also within egalitarianism, there's a broad spectrum. Yes. And she's on the left side of that. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of egalitarians I, that aren't that far down that road. If I might insert before we transition. Isn't, there's a famous theologian who says, you learn your rules, you better learn your rules. If you don't, you'll be gobbled by the earth. Isn't that something that's out there? <laughs> gobbled by the earth? Learn your rules, you better learn your rules. No. You know what I'm talking about? No, no, no. no. Oh, I thought went. you were just okay. referring Whoa. to Cora. Well, I was, but anyway, Andy. Oh. <laughs> that is Cora. Thank you. Okay. Did, is that it? Were you done? Yeah, we'll put that one, I think, on the shack stack. Okay. All right. Wow, that's is that our first submission on the Shack Stack of the year? I, I can definitely put. I have I to write. A, I have to write a report of that one still. But Charlie, we need to slam on the table and hit with your hand. Oh, okay, that was okay. <clears throat> All right, for my books and business, I have not been reading, but last week I did start writing again, and then I had like a flurry of posts. A flurry meaning I had two in like two days, which is abnormal for me. Can't wait for the blizzard. <laughs> oh man, maybe. Well, then then I actually write a book. So I thought, I was just thinking how last week was the end of the very first semester for me, and God has just given me a lot of grace. I'm not, I'm not experientially doing the way I expected I would be doing or how I would expect I would be doing right now. And I was trying to sort that out in my mind. Why am I doing well? And I think it's because of the nature of how God has bestowed grace and then the nature of how he placed grieving in my wife with my, in my life with my my late wife and I. So the first post that I'm writing on that is the ways that God has shown grace. And so that was when God's grace is unexpected. So that dropped the other day. Um, but then the other thing that I was writing is I've wanted to do this for a long time. I love leftovers and I think it makes a great metaphor for church. So there's another short post I wrote called Sunday leftovers. I'm going to try to do this occasionally where I just share something I learned from the sermon on Sunday and this week's was awesome. And I just want to tell the listeners what we did at church because it's really cool. So Pastor Saylor has been going through 1 Corinthians. Do you remember when he started, Tim? I can't because I think it was maybe October 22 or something. I don't remember. <clears throat> it was a long time ago. And I mean, it's a big book. And he, he walks. He's a verse by verse guy, but he's not a verse by verse guy that's like getting into the minutia. But I, I thought it was nice the way he ended it. Um, the Sunday night service, we read the entire book. That's all we did. So we started reading at the beginning. We stopped after chapter 10. We sang one song, stood up so we get the blood flowing, and then we finished it. It took an like, hour and 15 minutes. And it was just a, a very fitting way to end a series in a book. Because you think of the commands to give attention to the public reading of God's word. And now, as you're going through, I know some of those passages are a long time away, but I thought it was it was cool 
to, to see the scope of ministry that God had accomplished in like a year and a half in all of mm-hmm. our lives. And it was very, I thought it was fitting. I thought it was, it didn't honor, it honored like the Lord and his work. And it was just a, a moment where you're remembering this lesson or that lesson or all oh, that passage or man, I remember what was going on in my life right there when we were talking about that. And it was something that was good. I couldn't put my finger on it. So I thought that was cool. I, I, I think we should call that the sailor finale and churches should start doing that personally. But anyways, so that's my books and business. I didn't really do any reading, just some writing. Awesome. I do like that. That is a, a yeah. fun thing to do. Read through the whole book. Yeah. I don't think I would ever think about that. And he got through, I mean, he had to read the whole thing. Yeah. So he did it though. I might've pulled some volunteers, but that's what I was thinking. But <clears throat> so here's what's in this episode. We're going to talk about a recent, a uh, couple of writings about the mood and philosophy of ministry. And a couple key characters in the discussion are Kevin DeYoung, who sort of created the, uh, the topic as he made a post a couple months back. And then the other character is Doug Wilson, who DeYoung is commenting on. And so we talk about that and we discuss it as a group and we hope that that will be a blessing to you. And uh, yeah, here's that main content. Let's have a conversation about cultural engagement in ministry. Ooh. Ooh. Sounds interesting. So... A few months ago, or I guess as this is airing, it's it's about two months or so back, there was uh, some sparks flew between two leading, I'm going to call them pop Christian leaders. So one is Kevin DeYoung, and the other is Doug Wilson, and it centered around a, a blog post by Kevin DeYoung where he was talking about the mood of Moscow. So Moscow, Idaho is the town where Wilson and his empire of Canon Press, his church, the school, the classical Christian schools is, is in Moscow, Idaho. And so what DeYoung writes is a blog post titled On Culture War, Doug Wilson and the Moscow Mood. So the, the tone that comes out of that town is the idea. I just love internet blog kerfuffles. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a fun, if you're not in it, it's, it's interesting to learn from. So I'm excited about this. This should be interesting. It's a modern phenomena where they're having this dialogue, this discourse almost virtually in blogs. And Mm so Wilson, not Wilson, DeYoung posts the initial post where he points out some issues with Wilson. Wilson responds directly but then in the midst of that there's all these other people from both camps who are also blogging about it so it kind of has this like ruffle you know of 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 internet postings and so here's here's an overview of sort of what the issue is so they're dialoguing as pastors who are both reformed who share a lot of theological common ground they're discussing how you should, as a Christian, interact with your culture. Uh, And so they both have, just as a general statement, they both have some books that they've written, blog posts that they've blogged that would be helpful to you. We would not, as thinklings, fully endorse really either of them. No, we're not reformed. Yeah. And that's that's one thing. Uh, And they they have certain works that are better than others. And so... uh, you know, to use the the illustration, a broken clock is right twice a day. 
how I would classify DeYoung and Wilson is that uh, their their clock is set decently, but they're in a different time zone. So Ooh, that's that's, that's kind of the way I would look at it. Oh, that's a good illustration. What I personally found fascinating about their discourse is the way that they build a ministry philosophy of cultural engagement as pastors and theologians, who are very much so in a Christian and public spectacle. Their style, like personal ministry style, is completely opposite of each other. So on one yeah, side, you have yeah, Wilson, <laughs> you have Wilson, who is this bold, brash, in your face. Uh, intentionally satirical, intentionally sarcastic, witty, pithy uh, leader of of Canon Press, who has this no quarter November where he you know gets a, a flamethrower and burns down a bunch of like Disney character <laughs> cardboard cutouts. Everything burns <laughs> yeah. every November, and, and he's been Everything doing this burns. for for years. Where he you know no quarter, we're not going to give a place for any of this pagan idolatry. We're going to burn down Disney. Da 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 da. So there's Wilson, this very brash, bold, outspoken. And he wouldn't say that he's going to burn down Disney. It's no. just that as a Christian, a Christian should have nothing to do with Disney. Yes. Right? It's well, like Disney's an idol yeah. and it needs to be incinerated. It needs to go and be devoted to destruction. Is that what he was doing? I don't know about the Disney thing. I just know the the way No Quarter November started was satire upon satire as he said we here at canon press are always very the very first one he's like we're very measured yeah. and and calm and we we always <laughs> sugarcoat things but we've decided in the month of november we're just not going to sugarcoat anything which will be a very strange departure for us and so it's <laughs> ironic because like the guy who you're, you're you pointed out like his style's so satirical and then in, no, in november he's like and i'm not even going to put any of the brakes on it so i think that was mm -hmm. more the heart of it yeah okay but that's Gets right I don't where you're think going. <clears throat> he's not he's not trying to create a rebellion of like let's throw over Disney, even though he <laughs> does believe in Christian nationalism and would wholeheartedly <laughs> o agree yeah, with uh, a storming of the campus, so you so to speak. <laughs> I'm imagining everyone in Moscow storming. Yeah, Disney <laughs> head to Florida, and well, so California uh, would be closer. Yeah. Anyway, so the opposite of that is Kevin DeYoung who I have met and talked about things with, you know, he does has no idea who I am, but I met him at a conference years ago and he is uh, the opposite of Wilson's mood. He is very calm, serene. And at least from my outside perspective, he fits the bill of the, the traditional typical intellectual pastor where he's yeah. uh very exegetical. He's never going to be openly sarcastic. So they're, they're, it's a style fight, you know, like they're, they're, they're completely different fighters here. Right. I, I, I like what you just said though. I would say they really are both really clear and good thinkers. Yes. But you're, it's, it's a style. It's, it is. It's how they communicate their thoughts. And that is the substance of the conversation is DeYoung looks at Wilson and Moscow and says, your style is off. It's wrong. And then Wilson, uh, rejoinders to that. And, and that's, that's what's happening in this discourse. And their main issue is how your, your style, how you're engaging culture. Should you be openly sarcastic? Should you do less or more of that satire? That that's the, the discourse. And in what ways should a Christian interact with modern culture or oppose it? Are certain methods of opposition unchristian? 
These are the questions that they bat back and forth as they agree on some and disagree on many others. One example that we're going to get into a little bit more further on is with Wilson's language. So Wilson has a book we've mentioned called No Serrated Edge. Serrated oh, Edge. Serrated Edge, right. Where you appropriately at times to pick up this <clears throat> prophetic voice. You want your your cut to have some edge to it, some serration. Mm -hmm. And in many writings and speaking engagements, YouTube videos, Lots Wil of YouTube. <laughs> Wilson uses that bold, serrated language as he engages culture. Mm -hmm. He he intentionally does that. And uh, Wilson's camp, you know, that Moscow mood, they call it the prophetic voice. The prophetic speech is what they're aiming at. And what they mean is that, well, there are prophets in the Bible who speak very uh, directly mm -hmm. to either pagan culture, pagan nations, or an unrepentant Israel. So that's, you know, they think that this is the way they should do it. Kevin brings that up in his, his blog post, in his critique of Wilson, and he outlines a handful of unique terms, you know, focus on unique there, uh, which is putting it lightly, that Wilson has used in his communication over the years. I'm not going to mention them, but if you pull that blog post up, he very specifically shows um, what we would call a, a plethora of sexual or curse words that Wilson uses routinely. Yeah. And I would say he's not like Mark Driscoll from the late 90s, but I would say Wilson is definitely he doesn't uh, over the line, <laughs> over my line at least. So and, reserve and reserve yeah. your thoughts. We'll come back. <clears throat> okay, we'll come back. I like that. So here's my here's why I think this is interesting and worthy of conversation. So we have a very popular book that popular not popular in mass, but to us, where we have ascribed to the idea that the medium affects the message. So why I think this is interesting is to ask this question. Does your mood affect your message? Oh. Okay, so here's the main idea of the episode. Spicy. DeYoung and Wilson's discourse, as well as the plethora of their defendants and other blogs, defenders and prosecutors, uh, their discourse about the mood of ministry proves relevant <laughs> for all who seek to live a Christian life of the mind serve in a local church, and be used of the Lord. This is an appropriate reminder to not only consider the content of what we say, but also a reminder to pay attention to how we say it. So here, uh, a little bit more specifically, some bullets of what DeYoung brings up in his blog post. Number one, DeYoung explains context. And so the context is the whole no quarter November We've mentioned this previously on the podcast, and uh, some of those No Quarter November YouTube videos, social media posts, might be worth a quick watch. It, it might give you some idea of what DeYoung is, is pointing out about Wilson, and anecdotally, some of those videos are quite funny. Like, I think they are well done, and you get to watch him literally don a flamethrower, and like, <laughs> he shoots a drone out of the sky, he burns Elsa cardboard cutout of Frozen. So good. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't see that he one. He sits on a burning couch. I mean, the first one, he's just sitting there on a burning couch. Yeah. Literally burning. <laughs> this year's this year's video was, and, and then they actually sold, Canon oh. Press literally sold for, I think, roughly $2,000 Canon Press flamethrowers. Wow. So, oh, yeah, I missed this year. I forgot. I was otherwise detained. Wow. So uh, that's the first point. That's the context is the no quarter November, which is why DeYoung posted this in November. 
Two, DeYoung does not disagree with the use of satire and sarcasm against those who've turned away from the truth or oppose the message of truth. Here's a direct quote from DeYoung's blog. I'm a fan of good satire. John Witherspoon used it to great effect against 18th century moderates in the Church of Scotland. Sarcasm can be a holy weapon in the Lord's army. See Elijah on Mount Carmel. But sarcasm and satire by the minister are best used sparingly and against those whose hearts are set against the truth. Wilson makes fun of those who could be allies and loves to troll people who disagree with him. It's as if all the world is a meme war to be won, and no publicity is bad publicity, so long as people are paying attention to Wilson and Canon Press. I suppose I've taken the bait by writing this essay. <laughs> so what is, what is DeYoung taking issue with? It's not the use of satire and sarcasm at all. It's the way, the mood, the mm -hmm. tone yeah. in which Wilson uses it and directs it not only at those who are pagan, but against those inside, you know, against other reformed like, Christians. Like or Out of the house and in the house. Yeah. So <clears throat> thirdly, DeYoung is going to come back to the issue of language. And again, DeYoung poignantly highlights a few handfuls of Wilson's questionable vocab choices. We're not going to mention them, but you could go and look at it. And I personally found that to be quite uh, insightful, like to look at the phrases that Wilson has used, not just like a cursory, you know, slang huh. term, but like very sexual language, descriptive yeah. sexual language of describing ministry entities like certain things. And so, um, and this is in DeYoung's article. He lists these. He does. He he hyperlinks them and blots them out. So you you know, but you are very clearly seeing. You know what he's with saying. direct primary source. Wow. So if you want those links, you can go to the article DeYoung's on Culture War that article blog, and you can read through them. This might not be that profitable, other than to validate DeYoung's claim that maybe sure. the language is skeptical. It may be helpful to understand a bit more about the man Wilson who's writing the book about future men. So that's a book that we've talked about that we think is good. Yeah, I like it. And I, I just think it's interesting. So even if Wilson does not address language specifically in future men, Wilson's rejoinder to DeYoung's blog post clearly emphasizes that he would not deny himself as a template for future men. So. Would you want a future man to speak like Wilson? Good question. Here's a quote from DeYoung. Were I to use these words in public or in private, I would be quickly confronted by my elders and likely brought before my presbytery for questioning. And that's a unique Presbyterian reformed entity, a, a presbytery. If I persisted with this language, I would probably be deposed as a minister. And right, rightly so, for language const, this language constitutes filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, etc. Which of the Puritans, or Southern Presbyterians for that matter, would have dared to speak this way? What candidate coming forward for ordination could get away with writing in this way? What parent would be thrilled if their daughter's new boyfriend sprinkled his vocabulary with words like these? If such prophetic language is justified for the minister when he is attacking a godless culture, is the language therefore appropriate in the pulpit? So he just said, again, how do we interact with our culture? Is it okay? Is it okay in ministry philosophy 
to utilize some of those phrases if we're attacking the right person at the right time. That's so Kevin's kind of idea there. So ultimately, DeYoung decides that Wilson's sarcasm, his language, his vocab is too much. And he, I think, very pleasantly is like, hey, you know, you could do better. Like you could maybe not use some of that and still be very powerful and effective. And so that's that's sort of the article is those those points there to rehearse them. He looks at No Quarter November. He says, hey, satire and sarcasm aren't wrong, but maybe some of this language and its tone is not befitting ministry in the way you engage culture. So maybe you should modify that. That's in essence what DeYoung says. I just want to, this is not related to the topic, but I do want to point out that I've been wanting to read the Moscow mood article and I've just not gotten around to it. That was super helpful as a summary. Like, I feel like I just was able to consume all the high points and now I can talk about it. I, it's, it's also, you didn't share it in a way where I don't want to go read the article now. <laughs> well I actually, done, sir. Well I actually done. would encourage, uh, again, we, we would not endorse all of DeYoung or all of Wilson. And this is going to be a balanced approach where I don't think all of Wilson is wrong and I don't think all of DeYoung is right. I'm probably going to side more with DeYoung at the end of this. But it is worth reading, and I think then even going and reading Wilson's rejoinder, as he calls it, is worth your time as well. So, Yeah, I similarly haven't followed the conversation. I have not read the Moscow Mood article. Methodologically, I kind of am a little bit suspect because if DeYoung just went through and cherry-picked specific quotes where Wilson was too, what, uh, the terminology he used to and in, in, immoral, immoral or, or whatever else. Or, yeah. So he's just cherry picking specific words and stuff out of context. I mean, I I'm a little bit I, skeptical of that kind of methodology. I um, don't think he's taking it out of context. Okay. I mean, he, he links every direct article. He well, sure. From. But he's kind of being so like specific wording, ripping it out of context. You can do that even with the scriptures and some of the stuff that's even in the scriptures is extremely, even coming from the prophets is yeah. very what <laughs> un, un uh, distasteful. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of comparisons to bodily functions. Correct, pro- exactly. Pro- well, not a lot, but there are some. So I, I kind of have some. Egregious. My methodological tingles are like eh, I don't know how much I like that, but anyway, no, no, very no, helpful. Nonetheless, there are. I, I'd be curious. Um, the reasoning he says. And maybe this is not where you're going because there's New Testament commands that would, I'm not a prophet. Correct. But that's, they're saying it's so, a prophetic voice, right? That's the argument. Yes. yes. And so See, that's interesting. I, the, the, the thought that really kind of perked up in my mind is in that, that idea of when he says, so dads, if a young Doug Wilson came to your house dating your daughter and was saying things like this, would your first reaction be like, all right, baby, marry that guy. <laughs> That's really good. Wow. <laughs> and to two fathers with daughters, maybe you can comment on that later. Personally, I was like, hmm, you know, I probably wouldn't be so thrilled right away. Maybe I'd come around, but obviously that's out of my context. I don't have kids. I'm not even married. But so here's a little twist of historical perspective. So this is not the first time that people of similar theological belief have had issues with how they're engaging culture. You ready for this? I'm so excited about this. So the discussion <laughs> of how so good. <laughs> the discussion of how to interact with culture as a Christian is not new. This reminded me of study that I did a while back in undergrad 
going back to the roaring 20s into the post-World War II era of evangelicalism in oh, America. Man. In that time frame, you had two groups of people that were likely known better for their caricatures than their legitimate lives. So who are those characters? You have the fighting fundamentalists and the new evangelicals. Well, the issue, technically, the new evangelicals didn't come around till like the 40s and 50s. The they post-World were, War II era. Oh, you said post-World War II? Oh, I thought And they you were said present the 20s, from the beginning. My bad. It just, they didn't, yeah. until the fight was over with the liberals, they hadn't coalesced into their two yeah. groups. It really, it really takes form in the 40s, yeah. but they, they are definitely there back in the 20s and 30s. Gotcha. And so, so here you have these fundamentalists who are viewed as this militant, very in-your-face type of person, like a... Well, and they were. We'll get to it in a moment. You could think of some of those characters. And you have the new evangelicals who are trying to present themselves as a more cool, calmer, collected response to the modern air, right? The issue between those groups was not purely theological. In fact, yep. they agreed at least in confession, on almost everything. Right. It was an mm -hmm. issue of mood. It was. It was cultural. Similar to DeYoung's distaste of the Moscow mood was Harold John Ockengay, who was uh, one of the Ooh. first leaders of Fuller Theological Man. Seminary in the 40s, and his, his buddies. They had a strong distaste for the gunslinging, shoot now, ask for forgiveness later, J. Frank Norris. <laughs> That's, that's good. And I'm going to put so a caveat good. to that. I don't know if these two ever met. So J. Frank Norris or Harold Ockengay or discoursed or will discounter with each other. They, they clearly didn't write blog posts. They probably had some articles about each other at some point. And one of them definitely carried a gun. Yes. <laughs> well, it's funny, man. I don't want to interrupt you though. Go ahead. Okay. Because they didn't have blogs, but they had the little papers, the little did. journal paper. And, and that was essentially what they And you can go back and read those. So the new evangelicals disdained so the method of cultural engagement of the fundamentalists, <laughs> and they sought to create a new mood. They sought a softer tone, cerebral, town square cultural engagement, as they deemed the fundamentalist mood as incompatible with genuine social ministry. Another full caveat, both sides of the this issue, fundamentalist and new evangelical debate, have issues. So it's not as if I'm you know, pitting one as Wilson, one as DeYoung, and I think one was right, one was wrong. They both had their issues. But, so here's a quote from Ockengay from the 70s as he reflected on the opening of the Fuller Theological Seminary in 1947. He, this or is in the 70s he's writing this? I believe this quote is from the 70s. Okay. Yep. And also on the fundamentalist front, I mean, we, we always hold up J. Frank Norris because he was like the Worst. Yeah, the worst. Yeah. There were a lot of fundamentalists yeah. that we'd we, rather gonna, identify with. <laughs> and, and we're going to mention one and, in a moment. Yeah, And there were a lot of fighting ones. I, I, yeah. I remember washing windows for a friend of my mom's and uh, her husband had been a pastor and he had gone to Grand Rapids Baptist College before it became Cornerstone and he had like Ketchum in class. Yeah. Or he had some fundamentalist who I'd heard of in Dr. George's class. Yep. And he's like, be careful. He's like, and he, the, the, the mood, the tone that he communicated that this guy in the classroom gave was very like fight. I'm ready to fight. It was like fight. a J. Frank Norris type. It of, really was. Oh, okay. And so I do think there's a. There was a fair amount of that. And you got to think about, I'm not trying to hijack this. No, but, do it. But you've got such a serious issue, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, right, pretending right. to be a Christian and not in the 20s, actually going back to the 70s, 1870s. And then you've got, how do we deal with it? And 80% of the messengers at the vote are like, oh, that sounds okay. 
and the only 10% knew that this is a big deal. So I can sort of see where the fighting fundies were like, we've got to do something and no one's doing anything. Mm-hmm. And then you've got them doing it in a brash way. And then you got the new evangelicals like, well, what if we just kind of, you know, I, it's funny. You can mm-hmm. almost see the same split in that twenties in today's twenties. And, almost. It's, and it's, it's, it's a tone issue. Yeah. Yeah. I'm now, glad you brought it into the <clears throat> fundamental. Cause when you were going through your intro thing with Wilson and young, I was totally thinking, New evangelical approach to culture yeah. and fundamentalist <laughs> yep. approach to <Yep>. culture. <laughs> but it's a little different too. So I'm, It's nuanced. Yeah. I, sh- I should resonate with what you said earlier, Tim. There are theological fundamentalists who we much more identify with on this. Right. The three of us yes. in our history. Right. And so it's been interesting for me in the last 10 years to get to know newer fundamentalists or different types that are more relational or more loving. tribal. Uh, or yeah, loving. Well, those we've we've... Yeah. So anyways, I, I would agree with you. There's, I don't want to like besmirch all fundamentalists. So let's get to some quotes from these guys. So yes. here, I is, love quotes. here is Harold John Ockengay commenting on his uh, initial address at Fuller Theological Seminary. Quote, New Evangelicalism was born in 1948 in connection with the convocation address, which I gave in the Civic Auditorium in Pasadena. That's where Fuller is at. While reaffirming the theological view of fundamentalism, so no theological difference, affirming it, this address repudiated its ecclesiology and its social theory. It differed from fundamentalism in its repudiation of separatism and its determination to engage itself in the theological dialogue of the day. It had a new emphasis upon the application of the gospel to the sociological, political, and economic areas of life. So what's the difference? Mood. So here's a, I'm going to quote from a blog that's the eccentric fundamentalist. No idea who this is, <laughs> but he's going to, he's going to mention Ernest Pickering's thoughts on new evangelicalism. A quick note on Pickering. Who is this guy? So Andy and Tim are both graduates of Central Seminary yeah, in Minnesota. And Pickering was the dean of Central Seminary in the fifties and sixties. Which if you go to Central and you go to their library, they have a bust of him mm-hmm. and you can... So this, this would be someone <laughs> squarely in our lane is Ernest Pickering. Now, again, not to endorse everything that someone is, but here's a quote from him. He would represent the fundamentalist side of the equation in that debate. And the point he's making here is, uh, so here's the quote from the blog. Pickering in 1994 observes that evangelicalism was born with a particular mood. And that's their word, not mine. This particular mood was marked was a marked dissatisfaction with the militant ministry philosophy of the fundamentalists. Pickering remarked that the militant excess of some fundamentalists, and here's direct from Pickering, disheartened younger men and propelled them toward a softer and broader position. It's it's a tone. Mm. It's a tone issue. And and Akengay and Pickering, among many others, knew that. Like that was the substance of this new evangelicalism of the 30s, 40s, 50s was we have to have a different mood. And so the quotes here are just to highlight that this is not like, you know, we don't want to look back on history as if they've never had these discussions. This is something that's been percolating in America for a hundred years. And it's worth your time as a Christian. The it's a broader issue too than just how you talk 
Yes. It's how you are interacting with social <clears throat> justice and the poor and the mission of the church. And so there's a lot of other issues connected to it. The tone, the mood, and what, what you're, how you're speaking to culture is like a slice of the pie. So yes. maybe just that qualification. Yeah, no, I was going to make the same one. So broader application of the gospel to culture than that quote, that that's like a broadening of what the gospel is. And you see that with N.T. Wright and a bunch of others in the most recent years. But it's funny to me because like there are those theological differences and yet the tone differences, I think, man, they became... Uh, like at the forefront of that conversation. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say like I, I don't know if that's half and half. <laughs> I don't know if that's wise to say. So and and again, but it's there, big enough that I'm I'm granting. And it it's point. not as if it's not as if it's only tone, like Tim said. There are some content issues with New Evangelicals as well as with Moscow as well as well as Kevin mm -hmm. Young. There's yep. there's content issues, but we're highlighting here the tone yep. issue, and so. I would say that some of Wilson's interactions are much closer to the mood of the fundamentalist uh, than the mood of the new evangelical, where he is very like in your face, like pull the 32 Smith and Wesson, shoot the guy in your office type of vibe. Okay. Now I would just say, so, and what I mean by that is if a modern pop Christian pastor was going to shoot someone in their office, I would rank DeYoung as a probability of like a two or three out of 10. And I would say Wilson is a 10. And to specify, that's a 10 gauge. Careful. Like, he's going to well, shoot someone well, in his office. We, we might need to pull that back. Yeah. <laughs> and also, he'd probably use a flamethrower. I think he would agree with my satirical jest, though, maybe. He actually, I think in satire, he would say what you said was satirically appropriate. Taken well, out of context, I think someone would accuse you of if, if for any, him. If anyone has any issue with that comment, it is a joke. Yes, okay. it's a joke, everybody. So, here's some concluding thoughts. First, I was challenged both with DeYoung and Wilson's discourse as they interacted with each other. I thought they were fair and equitable, but they shared their ideas and thought the issue through. A conversation like that should be ongoing and it should be a consideration for all of us to think it through and to think how we have that discourse. I'm looking forward to see, hearing a little bit more about what Tim and Andy think here. So that's my first takeaway. Second, I found myself looking for help from Peter and Paul on the issue. So what does the Bible say about Ooh. mood? Ooh. I do not have a good, as good a working knowledge <clears throat> of the uh, uh, Petrine epistles, Peter's epistles. So I won't comment on him specifically other than to say that he did cut off a guy's ear. So I bet he would have some pointed comments on the subject. Oh. Anyway. Would we be able to hear them? Oh boy. I would, oh. <laughs> I would consider Paul to be very concerned about his mood in 2 Corinthians. Yes, he did directly confront sin when necessary. So read Galatians. He, you know, evokes anathema on people who change the message. So he's not going to shy away from confrontation. I don't think Paul would have ever wanted his public ministry persona to be defined by sarcasm. I'm willing to recognize that it's a matter of opinion, my opinion about it. And so I'm not really sure, you know, how far to go down, you know, what would Paul think and try to assume what he would think. Anyway, uh, overall, here are just a few quotes from Paul in 2 Corinthians that I think might be worthy of discussion. So here are some verses. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. 
not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. For we are not like so many, peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by an open, I might enter, simple statement, by an open statement of truth, would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Those are a smattering of quotes between Second mm. Corinthians 2 through 5. Mm. Overall, I still find benefit in both of these men. I'm not swearing off Doug Wilson. Uh, pun intended. That was, that was, that was, thank you for pointing that out. Sorry for I bad have jokes, that. but pun intended. Those were the, good. The personal benefit uh, for me was to rethink the way that I or we proclaim truth and to be reminded of the need for careful precision when we engage other believers in a church or your friends or your family or with unbelievers. Ministry philosophy of culture and cultural engagement deserves careful consideration. <clears throat> Uh, one last thought as thinklings. I'm not sure what our thinklings mood is perceived to be by our listeners, but I hope mm. it includes comfort so much as God's word and the Holy Spirit give comfort. I hope it involves hope so much as we focus our podcast on the hope in the gospel. And I hope it involves joy so much as we promote reading and discussing good books with godly friends. Uh, last, I hope it involves creativity and imagination so much as we dedicate weekly time to the life of the mind. That's what I hope is the thinklings mood. And uh, maybe in the background of that, you could add some Howard Shore Shire soundtrack in the background. Ooh. And so I, I personally, I think I would take the, maybe a leaning towards the young here, uh, that the way you speak is very <clears throat> important. And uh, hopefully we've found a good mood in our podcast. Anyway. Uh, that's all I have there and would love to hear more commentary from Thinkling Little and Thinkling Sterns. I would just, I'll jump in real quick and then Tim, you can go and then I'll have one more thought. <clears throat> so Wilson is so, um, I don't know if the word is acerbic or testy or, you know, sharp and barbed in his speech that I've actually noticed when he's not that way and it's been more alarming. And so his review of de young's article was very positive and he was looking forward to interacting with him and i remember seeing that and that was all i saw of it but you guys remember when macarthur this is like in the last year said we don't win down here folks and his eschatology is an argument that we're gonna do our best we're gonna be faithful <clears throat> but we won't win until christ returns and it was an argument is sort of a shot at post-millennialism because post-mill is saying we're gonna we're going to have big families. We're going to Christianize the nation. We're going to, it's going to be that sort of a thing. Well, all of these post mill hashtag dat post mill boys got on and they're like going nuts online. Either Wilson said something first or Scott annual did, but did you guys see the articles going back and forth? Wilson, like Scott wrote his article and Wilson said, this is a, he praised it. He said, this is really good. I'm looking forward to interacting. And they had like a good back and forth. It's just funny. He's it's so I, I don't know what I'm saying here with this other than Wilson is such that when he's gentle and honorable, it's like alarming and surprising and refreshing. Go ahead. So that exact point 
Kevin DeYoung brings out in his post where he brings up an example of someone that was very distasteful of Wilson and to Wilson and they passed away and Wilson made a very generous, kind post about that person. Mm. So you can go and read about that. And DeYoung is like, you know, he's almost more powerful when he doesn't use the satire. Yes. And in this year's No Quarter November video, he actually, so here he has that really nice comment about annual discourse. Then in the No Quarter November video, he like takes a shot at G3. Oh, seriously? Like a sarcastic, (laughs) like, G3. And and that's, that's kind of Kevin DeYoung's point is like, is that the way you should be interacting first with outsiders, but then also with insiders? Hmm. And I think his bigger issues with the insiders, like, we could be your allies. Why yeah. are you taking shots at us? Right, because he's treating somebody that is inside as a scoffer. Yep. Okay. So that's where, I mean, understanding who your audience is. And he's even, inter- or, uh, DeYoung is interacting with this because he says he, uh, what you said, that there is a time for it, for the sarcasm, for the, um, the, the punchy speech. So this yeah. is like my question, and maybe you guys have an answer to this. I don't know if you have it off the cuff, but when has DeYoung spoken sarcastically, publicly? When has DeYoung written sarcastically where those are the enemy and you need to identify them as the enemy? Are you following me here? Yeah. I'm not saying... I don't know if he has. I don't think he has. Or I, not, I, not, I shouldn't say he that. He probably has. I just, it's not common enough in my reading of him, which is not expansive that I haven't noticed it. So you have Wilson who seems to do it like all the time. And then you have DeYoung who never does it. Well, that's not true. Okay. So he did write a book, Why We're Not Emergent, specifically saying, this is why we're not an emergent church. Yeah. And they were the enemy. And then he followed that up with why we love the church. Again, pointing out issues of he actually, I'll review this book at some point, but he like just slams the shack and like how bad its conception of God is. You can't like the idea that you could somehow find Jesus without the local church. And, and I would also contend as a pastor, which in his community, his pulpit, I'm sure he speaks out about it. And again, I don't know if, if he needs to be so publicly, blogosphere doing that. Um, not to say that Wilson's wrong to do it. I actually appreciate some of that from Wilson, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think it is a little off to say DeYoung never. Okay, good. It. That's but, fine. And I mean, I did listen to his blog uh, with Rosario Butterfield, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And, you know, he doesn't... Is that DeYoung or Wilson? Uh, that was DeYoung. Yeah. DeYoung with Butterfield. And they were pretty, you know, these people are not on our side. Um, but the colorful language, I don't know if that's part of the conversation. Okay. And so it just gets me into, and plus with your selection of like Pauline writings, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to defend Wilson, but, um, Paul says some colorful, colorful things too. Yes. So, I mean, we, we should also temper what you, what you, what you read with first Corinthians four, Galatians five. And Paul's thoughts on circumcision with the Jewish people in Galatians 5. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then even his his uh, idea of what we as believers are. Um, so he uses some colorful language. And, and I know that I'm not agreeing with Wilson, 
But at the same time, I'm going to push back on DeYoung a little bit because I'm not sure he, I don't know, he does a good job at saying these people are not on our side. Yeah. But that's what the problems with the evangelicals were, the new evangelicals were. Well, they they would speak out of both sides of their mouth, you know. Right. Well, I would add, maybe comment. So when I think of Paul's colorful language, he says, I consider all my... um, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, blah, blah, blah. I consider it all scubala. Right. That's like the word for poop. Right. It's like a, it, it might've been like a four letter word back then. Right. But he's not talking That's about people. Right. He's calling what he trusted in poop. Right. Does that make sense? And yeah. then even when he says, I wish those in that Galatians, they would, cut themselves off. they would cut themselves off. Right. That's, that's like, I, I know that's a reference to circumcision. And he's saying they should, I think it's more of like a, it's more of a, it's like a double meaning word phrase. And then what happens if you're cut off in the Old Testament? You had to leave the camp. And I think what he's saying is I wish they would just cut themselves off. And there's like a double meaning there. But we don't, where do you see Paul calling people like soy boys or femmies or gay or anything Wokey, like that? Sorry, I, I know those words, like that's all the words that, mm-hmm. that Wilson's using. And I, right. that's like. It's like slanderous in my opinion. Yeah. And that's where I don't know, like, what do I have? I have New Testament commands. I have Peter saying, keep your conduct among the general Gentiles honorable. So that then when we speak against you as evildoers, they would see your good works and glorify God in the day of visitation. I've got, um, be gentle and respectful when you're talking about the hope that you have. I've got all kinds of New Testament commands right. to be that way. Yep. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that what Paul did doesn't inform us. I'm just saying, yeah. I don't know what to do about Wilson saying, I'm the Old Testament prophet. Now, let me tell you what you are, you bunch of blankety blank, 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 blanks. Uh-huh. You know, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Not to beat a dead horse, but I, I think I'm okay with some of his like, yeah. like, so in your face to like Disney. I think I'm very okay with that. But, but it's not, it's Disney. It's the it's, concept. It, it, it's, and, and I think that's where not, yeah. biblically we do have clear example of yeah. like, you're outside and you're the enemy and like blast. But then I, I would, I mean, who I think we would all consider very familiar to us and friendly to us. He's been on our show, Scott annual to like, I could never conceive of a, of an opportunity where I would call him a name like that Mm -hmm. or like use any of that terminology to Scott. Sure. And I think that is what I agree with Kevin's perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not wanting to take away strong language when necessary. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't want to. I'm uncertain when I would know for sure that I should call someone some horrid name. Does that make sense? Right. In my anger, I'm always ready to do that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's where I, and I'll, I don't know if we want to keep, but my former pastor, so pastor saucer in Williamsburg, I, I will contend to the day I die that he's the humblest man I've ever met. And he in a ministry meeting would get confrontational. And I sat in on some of these in our church. And whenever he had an occasion in personal ministry where he got worked up, I would, I asked him and I said, so how do you balance like the righteous anger, you know, prophet's voice type of mindset when you're in a counseling scenario? And he says, well, most of the time I'm pretty convinced I'm right. Like they needed to hear it. However, I would never, and this is him, I don't do as well with this. 
He said, I would never give my own heart the benefit of the doubt that I wasn't motivated incorrectly. Hmm. And so whenever that would happen, I always call them and apologize. Interesting. Because I and the, the statement in Paul is that I don't want any stumbling block to be presented from the way that I perform my ministry. And I've just always been impressed by that. And again, here the probably the biggest caveat that we would maybe say is that none of us know either of these men personally. Yeah. That's and true. you know, maybe in Wilson's personal life, he is incredibly kind to his wife and his kids. And oh, I think he is. Well, we have that presented. Um, but we don't know him, mm-hmm. you know, and as someone says in their own book that, uh, the spouse is the one that really knows them. Uh-huh. And, uh, so who knows? Like, Sounds like a good book. <laughs> you know, a good song might we say, but so we don't know that side of the equation. Is it a full disc or a single? It's a single, single track. I'm done. I'm sorry. But so anyway, I, I mean, again, not, not, not to, throw one to the curb and be like, only listen to this guy. And even amongst the three of us, I think we're going to still read and interact with both of these guys. But the the reason I wanted to bring it up was I just think that thought for listener, for us, like how you present the truth, yeah. how important is that to you? And uh, I think especially the language you use, your posture to other people is important. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what I was reminded of. And, um, I would never, I'm never going to fall into a DeYoung camp or a Wilson camp, but I'm, I'm thankful for their camps discussing this so that I could think about it. Anyway. I have to say, I think this has been a profitable conversation, even though I don't have a certain like answer to this yet. I think my mind is going in good ways. I'm thinking of scripture. So I would just say that I think it's been good for us to discuss this, but one thought that just came to my mind, and I don't think we have time to tease this out because I'm looking at the clock. (laughs) So it's interesting um, so the, the passages I was just quoting to you, Tim, were yeah. people interacting with unbelievers. Right. <clears throat> okay. And so. Uh, or people per- leading un- other yes. believers away yes. from the truth. Yeah. Well, hold, that's actually coming next. So th- it, may be, it may be that I need to do more thinking about purpose of communication and who the audience is. So, for example. When Peter says, here's this unbeliever who watches you suffer horribly mm-hmm. and they come up and they're like, why do you still serve your God? And you're like, oh, let me give you an answer. But you got to do it with gentleness and respect. Right. You don't like say like, cause I'm not some idiot like you pagan pegger, you know, like that's not like what you, you give them a nice gentle answer. You love them. Okay. Nice alliteration. There you go. Thank you. Well, it's whatever came out. Um, and then in, if you think of Romans 12, four, it's the, or two, four, one of the two, it's God's kindness that leads people to repent. It's not his anger and wrath. It's the fact that they know they deserve it. And it's God kind, his kindness. Okay. But those would be in the evangelistic, uh, sort of world. But if we, I, now what I want to do is go back through first Timothy, second Timothy and Titus, where Paul makes admonition after admonition to Timothy and Titus, that they are the, the church is the pillar in the ground truth. You should guard the truth. You should stop the mouths of unbelievers. You should like get the people out of the flock. They're saying wrong things. And so part of me, I wonder what Wilson's purpose is. Does this come up in DeYoung's article at all? Well, it's a whiz, All of it is a wisdom decision. You're in the realm of wisdom literature. Yeah. Answer you doing, a fool according to his father. Yeah. Don't, don't answer, answer a, fool. a fool. Yeah, exactly. Okay. 
where I'm trying to go is yeah. maybe maybe the audience and the purpose has part of our. Clue. It is. I think it is. And I I don't remember that being a specific okay. thing that DeYoung addresses. Not to say that he didn't, but so as far as like how much Wilson interacts with the fool, well, you know maybe just let it go, and there needs to be a little bit more of the the compassionate and public admonishment. But with DeYoung, I don't ever hear the sarcasm or the punch on the enemy. And that may be unjustified. I'm totally willing to say, but the whole point you're is You're saying just, you're agnostic. You don't know. That's all you're saying. In this, you just don't know. I haven't. Doing, so. Yeah. I mean, these yeah. are two men and I haven't followed a lot of their literature or whatever else. But as I look at biblical principles and I see the interaction with the simple, the fool and the scoffer, what you're saying is the simple individual is the first Peter three, where the unbeliever sees you suffering unjustly. And so then how do you respond to that person? Well, you're there to basically instruct. Well, they might be a scoffer. They could be a scoffer. They could be and mocking in... you for still following Christ. And what yes. does Peter say? That's true. Yes. He says, flip him the bird and kick him in the face, right? <laughs> oh, no, he doesn't. No, he says, the flamethrower, baby. <laughs> he says, with gentleness and respect, explain why you hope. Right. So that's why it would be hard if, the, if they're fools. I mean, who, who is Peter thinking and of? And then the situation, the circumstances Rome, are still going to be... Yeah, it is. But the situation and the circumstances are what's going to govern how you respond in specific situations. And then at other times you do have the scoffer that's leading somebody astray. And then what do you do? And then you don the flamethrower. I have yet to see anyone in my life don a flame, like a rhetorical flamethrower right. and affect good things. I have only, that's the problem with me is I've only seen people don the flamethrower and it's like, wow, that was unnecessary. So that, that's where I think I'm very suspicious sure. that I would know when to pull the flamethrower. Sure. And the only times I have for me personally have probably been in the flesh, but that's my own failing and weakness. Sure. And that doesn't invalidate the whole issue. Sure. But fascinating discussion. Good gents. discussion. Charlie, good choice. So here's a final thought from God's word in my Bible reading program. I'm currently in. Kings, first Kings, that is. And the, the last time I was reading it was the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And I can't make this up because that actually does fit very well with what we we're just talking about. And so here are these pagan prophets, and they build their own uh, altar, and then Elijah builds his altar. And they're gonna, he's going to have them call on their God, and they get progressively more violent on themselves, and they're cutting themselves. And then Elijah prays and Boom. Totally like uh, altar just goes up and it's like a flamethrower. There we go. Um, but it, it gets destroyed, wiped out. So I just want you, listener, to put yourself... What are you going to say? Oh, just, it's a heavenly flamethrower. It is. It's I the mean, heavenly flamethrower. Coming off what we were just talking <laughs> Man, about. That actually fit really well. Listener, <laughs> you have no idea how much that was not coordinated. And it, it just got coordinated right there by the Lord, I think. <clears throat> but I want you to think about Elijah. Imagine being Elijah and staring down 450 false prophets and then having to trust God in front of all of them. There's probably stuff in your life that is going to require you to be risky and trust the Lord even this week. And you got to ask yourself the question, what are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of 450 pagans or are you more afraid of of not following the Lord who loves you enough to make a way for you to be saved and to know him and to accept you as his own child by adoption. 
Now, I want to actually talk about the beginning of the next chapter. That's actually what I want to get to. So that's the background. But in 1 Kings 19, uh, Elijah, th- that had just happened. And so Elijah says, it says this, this is 19.1 says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Because, sorry, one more piece of the puzzle. After this happens, and it shows that the Lord is truly God, they take all those prophets down to the river and they just kill them all, wipe them out. They perform the harem, which is what Deuteronomy says that they're supposed yep. to do yeah. to such individuals. Yep. And and I would say, like, you want, in one sense, to be, <clears throat> like, here are people made in God's image who have sinned, and because of that, they're paying for that, and that's a sad affair, okay? But, listener, that was a holy, just example of God's wrath, and that should be good in our minds. It's sad because it's people, but those people deserved it, and God was honored. And so that's kind of hard in our culture today to think like that, because um, it doesn't always come off that way. All right, so Elijah, verse, let's go 19.1. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Verse three, then he was afraid. Now, here's where he immediately starts running, and he flees from Jezebel. And this is the story where he, he finally gets to this broom tree, and he, it says in verse 4, and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept in the broom tree. And behold, an angel came and touched him and said, Wake up and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel came again to him a second time and touched him and said, Wake up and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he woke up and he ate, and he went with strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. So I, would, I just would thought this might be something to bat around, maybe. Here he is, he just stared down 450 pagans. God answered with fire. And then one wicked queen threatens to kill him, and he gets scared. Is there a thought there that there could be times in your life where you've walked with God and done really courageous things in faith and by faith, but there will be other times that might come where you get scared, maybe even unnecessarily so. I know Jezebel could have wiped him out and killed him, but like this is the same guy just a little bit later. You, you kind of think in your mind, like if you saw God with this massive miracle of fire, hey, I'd be fine. But just, we're sinners. We're human. We, get, we follow our flesh. And so maybe something really great has happened in your life, and now you're getting afraid again. That's okay. Just repent. Humble yourself and repent. And then the joking application is remember, when the situation looks really, really dire, you probably need to take a nap and eat something. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.